0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'm Pastor Joey. I'm uh, excited, is not the right word um, for what we're about to do this morning because we need to talk about grief. If you're visiting for the first time this weekend or you've not been part of the Faith Family very long, you may not be aware uh, that for, for us, for the Faith Church family, this was a hard week, a, a very hard week. One week ago, a young adult named Will Miles was driving with his girlfriend to a New Year's Eve party when they spun out on an icy bridge and were struck by another vehicle. Uh, both were rushed to the hospital. Uh, Will's girlfriend, Addie, has recovered, but Will... Uh, Will's heart stopped in the ambulance on the way there, and he couldn't be resuscitated. Will and his family have been part of Faith Church for two decades. Uh, Will grew up here, made lifelong friendships here. Uh, He participated in student ministry. He served in our kids' discipleship program. He went on mission trips. He'd begun exploring how to use his skills and careers an auto mechanic to serve in missions or serve others. Uh, and, And his death has come as a shock and shaken uh, most of us, uh, as one young adult put it, I feel like I've been through a massive earthquake, and I'm one of the only ones who felt it. How how does life go back to normal after there's been an earthquake? How am I supposed to go back to school or study for classes or go to my job? It's like, there's been an earthquake. (laughs) How come no one else felt it? So today, rather than pick back up in our study of Acts that we left off before Advent, we're just going to take a a few minutes together before we join together in communion uh, to do or to attempt to do what the Apostle Paul commands us to do in this passage, uh, to encourage one another, uh, comfort one another with these words. So we're carving out some time to talk about grief, Uh, not any one specific grief. Grief. Uh, But more generally, how we as a community grieve with one another, how we bear one another's burdens, how we comfort one another in our griefs. Uh, So this morning, it'll be less like a a typical sermon, more of just a, a talk, which means I get to sit down while we do it we're going to take the next few minutes together, just share some reflections from this passage. I'm not going to walk through it completely or dissect every word, but we're going to read this passage, find four ways we can take this passage and apply it to our communal life as we grieve together. Four applications from 1 Thessalonians 4:13 through 18. I'll run through them here real quick for you, and then we'll step through them one by one. Four applications first has to do with how we speak about death. Second is how we grieve, but with hope. Third application is about how we we give Jesus, not answers. And the fourth, the final command, that we comfort one another. So how do we speak of death, grieve with hope, give Jesus instead of answers, and comfort one another? Now, the first application that we can make from this passage comes from the very first verse, uh, because in the passage, the Apostle Paul brings up this topic of death himself without any prompting. The phrase that begins, verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, is a phrase that Paul uses when he wants to change topics. I was talking about that, but there's another topic of pressing concern. Let's shift to it. I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep which is a euphemism for those who have passed away, which is a euphemism for those who have died. So the first application is it's okay for Christians to talk about death. It's okay for us to talk about death, our own or the deaths of those that we love. It's okay. In fact, it's probably necessary. We often try to soften the idea, maybe even joke about it, use euphemisms, Kick the bucket, bit the dust, pushing up daisies, wearing the wooden onesie. That one was new to me too when I googled euphemisms. <laughs> but sleep is the most common one. Sleep is actually the most common way that death is spoken of in scripture. Uh, and so that's worked itself into our everyday language. Even our English word cemetery is from the Greek word for dormitory, sleeping place. It's where those go to rest. And I suspect I'm like most pastors in that every so often someone will come up to me and tell me they've been working on planning their funeral and would I participate in such and such a way. I've been asked to, you know, just be on reserve for doing a scripture reading, giving a homily, or one person's asked me to provide comic relief. And it took me a while to get used to, you know, get used to people talking so openly about their own deaths. Initially, I, I had kind of an allergic reaction uh, to that level of openness. I responded it reacted like the characters in Harry Potter do anytime Lord Voldemort's name is spoken. It's like, don't use that word, right? It's the thing which shall not be named. But as believers in the resurrected Jesus, we have to be able to speak of death. We must be able to speak of death, even our own deaths, in order to submit our fears of death over to Jesus. In a work called An Exhortation, Making Space to Speak of Dying, the poet and author Douglas McKelvey writes, children of the living God, let us now speak of dying and let us speak without fear for we have already died with Christ and our lives are not our own our dying is part of the story that God is telling to us and part of the story that God is telling through us he says it's it's not a dark and hopeless word we must take pains to skirt or mention only in hushed whispers lest our conversations grow awkward and uncomfortable Rather, death is a present and unavoidable reality, and one through which we, the people of God, must learn to openly walk with one another. Death will not have the final word, so we need not fear to speak of it. See, It's okay. It's good. It's necessary even for Christians to be able to speak of death without fear while even at the same time understanding that death is still an, an, an inhuman and abhorrent reality. Because in speaking of death, we don't, we're not denying death its power, we're denying the finality of death's power. Which means we grieve the effects of death, but we grieve with a backbone of hope. We grieve with a backbone of hope. That's the second application out of this passage to our lives. When we grieve, we grieve with hope. Verse 13, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, those who have died, because I don't want you to grieve as others do who don't have the hope, who don't have the same hope that we do. So the worry at the time, remember this is just in the first few decades after Jesus's death and resurrection, and so the worry at the time was that if people who had become believers in Jesus and were waiting for his return died before he came back, that was probably evidence that they'd sinned in some way. They weren't true followers of Jesus, they were being punished by God. And so Paul is clearing this up. No, those who have died aren't being punished they won't be left behind on the day of the, re- the king's return. They may have died, yes, but that doesn't exempt them from the hope of the return of the king. See, even as we grieve, we grieve and we hope. Even as we grieve, as we feel a deep sadness over the loss of someone or something we love, at the same time, we exercise hope through a disciplined resetting of our mind's eye, of our hearts, on the promises we have on, in Christ Jesus, on the hope that Paul outlines in the next verse. Verse 14, he says, Because, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, even more so do we believe that through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Because we believe Jesus died and rose again, we believe that he will bring those who have died in him with him when he returns. See, Paul isn't trying to get us to grieve less. He's trying to get us to grieve differently, to grieve with hope. It's it's an entirely different kind of grief, not just a different amount of grief. Some have read this passage and think that Paul wants us to exhibit some kind of stoicism, some kind of stoic calm that outside circumstances can't affect, as if loving Jesus means that no loss in this world should ever cause us any sort of pain because, hey, after all, you still have Jesus, right? Right? But we're not Stoics, we're Christians. Others have thought Paul wants us to be almost callously indifferent to the sufferings of the world. But again, we're Christians. We worship, we follow the Christ who deeply empathized with the sufferings of the world, who came into the world, entered into the suffering, and took that suffering on himself and experienced the worst of it that could ever possibly be experienced. And so we, of all people, can grieve and grieve deeply and grieve fully because we don't have to lie to ourselves and say, well, that's just the way things are. Death is a natural part of life. So, you know, hug your kids and tell your family you love them. We can both grieve and hope even if we're not very good at doing both at the same time. It, it takes effort to remind ourselves that we can both grieve and hope at the same time. You know, It takes effort to not give ourselves and others trite answers in the face of, uh, of grief. Because the temptation for all of us is when, when we face any sort of loss is to try to say that the loss is less bad than it really is because some sort of good has come out of it or might come out of it. But these two things can be true at the same time. Something can be both bad and have good things come out of it. The losses, all of the losses we experience are bad even if good things come out of or directly because of those losses. See, redeeming a loss doesn't make that loss good it makes that loss serve good. Because for God to defeat evil truly and completely, it's not just enough that the effects of evil be remedied or undone. Evil itself has to be made, has to be forced to serve good. And so we grieve, but we grieve with hope. Because we know, we remind ourselves, we read the words, we sing the songs that tell us again and again that even the losses we grieve will be forced to serve the good that God has in mind. Because God has and God will and God is completely defeating evil, completely eradicating death and forcing evil to bow to and serve good. He's not just undoing it, but folding it into his own very good plan. And so we don't grieve... Less, if anything, we grieve more more fully because we grieve with hope. But we have to be careful not to slide to one side of that and go only hope and not let ourselves actually feel grief. It's a third point of application from this passage. When we're with friends or family who are grieving, we have to remember we're not trying to give them answers we're trying to remind people of Jesus. Not giving answers, we're giving Jesus. One, one of the hardest parts of experiencing the losses that our family ha- has gone through, um, the infertility and miscarriages and all that, uh, one of the hardest parts has been fielding the so-called comfort uh, we heard from others. Uh, one author I read recently said that unless we're, extremely careful and conscious of our own words and our own emotions. When we're in front of somebody who's grieving 90% of the time, what we will say is intended to comfort ourselves, not them. And in our situation, the worst of it came from fellow believers. Hey, your baby's with Jesus now, which is true, but I kind of wanted the baby here, right? Or one person told us, you know, there's probably something wrong with your baby. That's why God took it home. Right? It's like, oh, so not only can we not carry a child, we also can't make a good one. Uh, One person told us, you haven't suffered all that much in your life. So statistically speaking, you were due. Because statistics are comforting. One person, I'm so sad about your loss. I don't know how you're dealing with it. I've been crying since I've heard. I'm just devastated. Subtext, would you please comfort me? Oh, man, and the other pastors shared some of theirs. Pastor Tom, when his mother died and he was crying, uh, an older lady came to him and said, why are you crying? Isn't Jesus enough? Or Pastor Bob, when, when his wife's mother passed away much too young, and an older lady came up to Jean and said, was, was your mom a believer? Yeah, she was. Oh, well, then everything's fine then, and walked away. My favorite, one person told me, well, you're a youth pastor. You're going to have tons of kids, and you get to send them all home at the end of the day. I suppose those are answers, but not necessarily helpful ones. And by the way, if you're like me and you've been on the dumb side of that, the speaking side of it, there's grace for that too and forgiveness as we learn how to comfort one another. So if you've said the dumb thing, you know, Jesus covered that too. We actually, in in some of our losses, receive more comfort from our non-Christian friends Um, They couldn't offer us any hope or point us towards Jesus, but to a person they said, I'm so sorry, can I bring you some food? And it got us through each day, um, but didn't necessarily point our hearts towards Jesus. There were were very few, precious few of our believing friends who both resisted the urge to give us answers and pointed us to Jesus instead. Because you'll notice here in verse 15 through 17, Paul actually does give a bit of an answer. Actually, it's not even really an answer, it's just the barest outline of details about the great return of Jesus the king. He says in verse 15, we who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, because the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are, who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And, and Paul is using some loaded language here resonant with the images, the cultural images and stories of a visiting king. When a king would visit the city, he would send his heralds ahead of him to announce his visit. They'd play the trumpets, blow the trumpets in, in front of the walls and demand that the gates be open to welcome the king. And all those in the city who were loyal to the king would rush out and meet him and then escort him back into the city. But the whole reason Paul gives us this bare outline of the day of the return of the king is so that we will have an assurance of the future, an assurance that those who, who died in Christ will be reunited with those who yet live, uh, so that with this assurance we can comfort one another. Uh, but almost everything I've read about this passage skips over the comfort one another part and focuses ex- on how exactly we understand all the details of the day of Jesus' return. What's it going to look like? How does it work out? which is like a child at Christmas ignoring the gift to play with the box. Paul's saying, let me give you kind of a metaphor for what this looks like on the day that the king returns so you can hold on to the hope that on that day, you and the ones you lost will be with Jesus. And we read the passage and we're like, yeah, yeah, no, I know I'll be with Jesus. But if we talk about the details of how that happens, it's way more interesting. So only cats and toddlers play with the box. Can you imagine receiving a gift and tossing it aside to pull out the cardboard box and say, wow, this is like six-ply cardboard. This is really well made. I think it's Italian. Made with the finest pine pulp, I'm sure. Now, of course, we should read these words and contemplate the return of Jesus, even try to puzzle out how it might occur, but to fixate on the how instead of the who is to ignore the gift in favor of the packaging. We're not called to give people who are grieving answers or explanations. We're called to remind ourselves and others when we're grieving, we're called to remind them of the story of Jesus. Jesus the story that we are part of, that we are living in anticipation of. And with that story then, to encourage one another. I think that what's most fascinating about this paragraph as a whole is that at the end of it, Paul doesn't command us. You know, hey, so you, in light of this, be strong. Take courage, do not be afraid. Do not faint, take heart. He doesn't use any of those. We would expect him after telling us about the, uh, the return of the king to focus in on then what each of us need to do. Do not despair, be strong. But instead he says, therefore, verse 18, therefore, in light of all of that, because of all of that, encourage one another with these words, with these words. The word that is translated encouraged in the ESV, it's an interesting one. Other English translations may use words like comfort uh, or even exhort. uh, Because it's a word that in different contexts carries different shades of meaning. At its most literal end, it simply means to come alongside someone else. Uh, So we could translate it very woodenly, come alongside one another with these words. But come alongside them for, for what purpose? Well, in other places, it means... Urge someone, exhort someone. So maybe what we're supposed to do is urge one another, exhort one another with these words to cling to this hope that we have. And that's part of it. With with those shades of meaning inside the word here, what it means is, or it's used to mean, is to tell us to take something we've been given, these words, these words about the return of Jesus, not incidentally, not the words about how Jesus might return, but that he will return. And that when he does, did you notice the order? You will first be reunited with those you've lost and then be united with Jesus. Use these words to instill courage or give strength to those who are grieving, to comfort them, which is not the same as soothing them, Comfort and encouragement are related to soothing, but they're not the same thing. Comfort or encouragement, both of these words have a sense of instilling heart into someone, giving fortitude to someone, strength to someone, to give support to them, to come alongside, even to come underneath and bear up, give heart, give strength to someone who needs it. It's actually the same word that's used as a title for the Holy Spirit in John's gospel. When Jesus says, I'm gonna send another helper, the Holy Spirit, I'm gonna send another comforter, a counselor, an advocate, this word, this idea, this action is what he has in mind, coming alongside, holding up one another, carrying their burden with them, bearing their sorrows with them, instilling heart and strength into them. When we do that, we're we're doing Holy Spirit work. Work that only the community of Christ can do. Paul himself tells us in his second letter to the Corinthians, which Pastor Jeff quoted in, in his prayer, that because God comforts us in all of our afflictions, we're able to comfort others in their afflictions using the same comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. We have received comfort, therefore we can give it to others. We have received encouragement. We have received heart and strength. We can give it to others who don't have it, who need it. Or as Samwise Gamgee puts it near the end of The Lord of the Rings, I can't carry it for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. So the final thought, final fourth application from reading this passage is that we are called, commanded to comfort one another, to give strength and heart to one another, but with these words, not with easy answers that aren't really answers, not with, platitudes on the level of it's the circle of life when we die our bodies feed the grass and the antelope eat the grass so it's okay to eat the antelope Simba (laughs) we don't theologically whitewash it either or give Sunday school answers hey Jesus is enough why are you crying that's not comfort nor do we call people to a stiff upper lip. We comfort one another by reminding one another where we are in the story, where we are as we share our true belief that death is not the end, that all of creation will be made new, that the children of God will be resurrected into eternal life in glorified physical bodies on this earth in which we will live and play and take joy all to the glory of God in, in community and creativity and worship and wonder and celebration forever. See, we, we move into an uncertain future, but with certainty that on that last day, on the day that the king returns, we will be reunited with those that we have lost. We will be reunited with what we have lost. And then we will join Jesus as he comes into his kingdom. And as we live with him in joy forevermore. That's the story with which we're called to comfort, encourage one another. As we speak of death, but without fear, as we grieve, but with hope. And as we point ourselves and one another to the story, to Jesus, not to answers that just make me feel better while I'm saying them. So let me close um, I'm going to quote again the poet Douglas McKelvey. Pray a prayer that he wrote for people who want to come alongside those who are grieving to help them grieve, but with hope. So let's pray this prayer together. Pray with me. Christ, we are at such a loss. We want to help, but we don't know what to do, we don't know what to say, we don't know how to act in light of everything that's changed, but we know this, we love our friends, our friends who are grieving. We do not want to let this brooding awkwardness lead us to withdraw until over time our avoidance becomes a pattern that could leave us stranded on opposite sides of an emotional chasm. So give us wisdom, grace, and empathy, O Lord, to simply walk beside, to let our friends lead as they learn to navigate this grief, and not to ever in arrogance believe that we can somehow set them straight or make it right, Or give advice that they don't need from us. Teach us how to set aside our own discomfort so that we might compassionately perceive in the context of their specific loss and their specific need what true encouragement and helpfulness would mean. And above all, let us learn to remain present in their lives, not forcing them to speak of loss, but being ever ready to listen to share their tears, to steward their story however much they choose to entrust to us. And so let us serve our dear friends well by a close and constant willingness to bear some small part of their long burden. Help us, O Lord, to speak fearlessly of death because it is not the end. To grieve, but not without the sure and certain hope of our resurrection from the dead. To point ourselves and our friends towards Jesus and not towards stumbling half answers designed to comfort the comforters more than the bereaved. And may we, as a community of faith, at faith, comfort one another with these words. We pray in the name of the one who suffered death so that we may but sleep through it.